We have reached the, uh, the halfway point of our current missions-focused sermon series, and if you've been following along, um, great. If you, if you are just uh, now joining us, uh, you can get caught up over the last couple of weeks through uh, Facebook or YouTube any of the, or our, web, our website. There's a podcast there. You can hear the past messages that we've been uh, working through here. The, a couple of weeks ago, we spent some time diving into uh, the agape love of God and how God has given us his spirit to take the love that he is and has, and he fills us with it. He sheds that love abroad in our hearts so that we can go out in the world and love like God loves. We don't have to muster it up within ourselves. God pours his love into the hearts of his followers so that we can love with his love in the world. And last week, we saw what that looks like in a person's life. We saw there in, in, uh, in the Apostle Paul, who, who gave us an example of, of what that looks like when God's love is in, the, in your heart and you're, you're, you're letting that pour out into the world through you. He says, he, com- he completes what is lacking in Christ's sufferings. And by saying that, he's not saying that Paul or any Christian or any person in any way can improve upon the complete and sufficient work of Christ in any way. What he's saying is, is that he, and by extension all of us, we Christians, we put flesh onto Christ's self-giving love for the world as we, you and I proclaim and embody the gospel to the nations. And that's all well and good, isn't it? God is love, of course, and we're filled with God's love, and we're motivated and defined by it as his people in the world, but we're still in the world, aren't we? I mean, we can talk about the nice, happy things, but we also have to face the reality of the kind of world that we're in and the kind of world that we're called to and the the mission that we're called to carry out. There's a cost that is associated with missional living, cost and risk. What will it take for you and me to be the people of God we're called to be and see it through in the face of the cost and the risk? Not to just start well in obeying Jesus and fulfilling the Great Commission, but to finish well. Well, if you would, turn with me to Hebrews. It's a great place to go whenever you're talking about the issue of suffering in the world or living as Christians in the world or persevering to the very end. We're going to be in chapter 10, as you saw perhaps in the bulletin there. If you grabbed a a guest Bible, we'll be on page 971. I'm just going to read a few verses there, uh, beginning at verse 32. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. The writer says, think back on those early days when you first learned about Christ. Remember how you remained faithful, even though it meant terrible suffering. Sometimes you were exposed to public ridicule and were beaten, and sometimes you helped others who were suffering the same things. You suffer along with those who were thrown into jail, and when all you owned was taken from you, you accepted it with joy. Now, this passage here follows one of those really uncomfortable and kind of dire warning passages that that Hebrews is known by about the very real possibility of apostasy. This idea that those who have have tasted of of the things of God, who have experienced the the saving grace of of God in Christ, and it was was affected by the Spirit, and, and, and who have tasted of this reality, but then for whatever reason have turned away from that entirely. This very real danger of, of walking away from the faith is a passage that, that just precedes the one we read. 
So it's this, this warning passage about the possibility of turning away. And there is real danger, friends, for the Christian in taking our eyes off the superiority of Christ, or taking our eyes and our hearts off of the absolute lordship of Christ in our lives. But the pastor who wrote this letter, and this pastor here, <laughs> um, these warnings are not intended to cause despair. No, these warnings are intended to wake the church up and call it to perseverance. The Christians that were being addressed in this letter had become lax and neglectful, but that wasn't always the case, was it? Look again there in verse 32. He says, think back on those early days when you first learned about Christ. Remember how you remained faithful, even though it meant terrible suffering. In other words, yes, you're, you're enduring persecution now. You're experiencing the hardship of, of living out discipleship in this world and and, and, and obeying Christ's command to be a witness to the nations, you're, you're enduring it now, and there's more to come. But there was a time when you also suffered before. This isn't the first time you've experienced hardship. This isn't the first time you've faced, the, 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 you've looked down the barrel of the gun of persecution, so to speak. This isn't the first time when you first learned Christ. Back in the early days, you suffered greatly, and yet you thrived. Remember, he says, back in, in the day when you were exposed to public ridicule, when everywhere you went, there were, there were people who jeered you and criticized you. Some of you were even beaten for your faith. Remember, he says, there in the second half of verse 33, when you not only were the one who was suffering and were ridiculed and beaten, but the time when you identified with those who were ridiculed and suffered and were beaten and even in prison, you went and you visited them in the prisons. And, and when you did that, you associated with them publicly and you put your own neck on the line. And, and as a result, when you returned home, your houses were destroyed and your property was plundered. And, and, and the things that, you, that belonged to you were, were taken away. Remember those days when these things happened to you. And yet, he says, you accepted it with joy. And you remained faithful. Remember those days. It's hard for us to imagine such an experience, isn't it? It's hard. Imagine going home today and finding all that you have worked to build and, and acquire and, and have taken away from you because you identified with Christians in a place of worship. It's hard for us to imagine such a world. Few, if, if any of us, have ever known any type of significant persecution of any kind. And so it's hard to imagine how we would respond if, if it were us, if the mob targeted our homes, our families, our friends, just because we visited someone in prison or shared our faith in the public square or ministered to the, the hurting and the needy and then rejoiced about it. I'm having a hard time picturing how I would respond if I left the, the church here this morning and walked across the parking lot to find the parsonage in, in ruins. It may end up in ruins one day because I've got three kids in there and we're always, you know, doing what families do. But it, imagine if it, if it ended up in ruins for the, because I'm standing up here preaching the truth. I have a hard time imagining that happening and I'm having a harder time imagining how I would respond to it. 
And then I start asking myself, as I've been thinking about this message this week, am I even living the kind of life for Christ that would ever put me at exposure to that type of risk? If I knew that preaching the gospel, preaching the truth, standing up for what is right, going out into the community and doing what what God has called us to do, if I knew that doing that would put me at risk of experiencing what these people experience in Hebrews chapter 10, am I willing to go to those places and to those people, people that not only need the gospel, but people that would, by identifying with them, put me at risk, put my property at risk, my family at risk, or even just the, the more minor things, putting my time at risk, putting my, my convenience at risk, my comfort at risk. Am I willing to even sacrifice those kinds of things? Perhaps many of us here have so insulated ourselves from risking anything for Christ, anything for sharing the good news, that what happens here in, in Hebrews 10, what is being described here is just completely unrelatable to us. Maybe that's because we've convinced ourselves that this business of being a witness for Christ in a way that might cost us something, well, maybe it's not really our responsibility at all. I have a, uh, a year-long daily devotional that was gifted to me by the author. He was, um, he was our revival speaker back in the spring, Stan Key. You may remember Stan. Stan's not a, a stranger to this church. He's been here several times over the years. Many of you have known him for many years, and uh, he's, he's terrific. He's, he's the best. We, we love Stan. And um, what I, one of my favorite things about this devotional is as, as I'm reading, you know, reading through it, I can hear him saying the words. It's so obviously f- written by him, and um, it's just uh, it's a it's a really great devotional. It's called Face to Face. If you're interested, uh, I, I recommend it, um, and you can check that out uh, wherever you know books are sold, whatever. Uh, but the entry from October 14th uh, struck me when I read it, and it's titled "What's Your Excuse." Uh, so get ready. I hope you brought your uh, steel-toed shoes on this morning and you're ready for some, uh, some toes to get stepped on here. I know mine, mine get stepped on when I read these things. What's your excuse? And in this, devo- this entry, he lists five classic examples, or I'm sorry, five classic excuses that Christians make to exempt themselves from Christ's missional mandate to the church. So if we're called to go out and to be Christ's witnesses to the ends of the earth, what are those Typical things Christians say that exempt them from that. And here, and here they are. Listen to these and, and be honest with yourself and, and you know, whether these you know, apply to you if you've been guilty of these in any way. Number one, yes, the New Testament commands followers of Christ to take the gospel into all the world, but I'm not called to it. I'm not called to it. As if we're waiting for some sort of audible voice from heaven to tell us to go do something. And, and Stan, Stan Key says, you don't have to wait for some crystal clear call. Why? Because we already have crystal clear commands. And, and the fact of the matter is, you know, very few people in the scriptures or in history have ever actually heard a, an audible voice tell them to go do something. And yet, far too many Christians, well, it's really an excuse. That's why we're talking about it. It's an excuse. We say, I'm not called to it because God hasn't told me to that. Well, yeah, he has. He has commanded his church to be and to do a certain kind of people and certain kind of things. You've, you've heard me quote this before. It's been a few years, but this famous quote from William Booth, the Methodist preacher who founded the Salvation Army. Every time I read this paragraph, I'm struck to the core. He says, not called, did you say? 
not heard the call, I think you should say. Put your ear down to the Bible and hear him bid you go and pull sinners out of the fire of sin. Put your ear down to the burdened, agonized heart of humanity and listen to its pitiful wail for help. Go stand by the gates of hell and hear the damned entreat you to go to their father's house and bid their brothers and sisters and servants and masters not to come there. And then look Christ in the face, whose mercy you have professed to obey, and tell him whether you will join heart and soul and body and circumstances in the march to publish his mercy to the world. Not called, you say. Not heard the call, I should say. Church, you and I cannot sit around making excuses that we're waiting for some supernatural divine calling because his commands are clear and they apply to us all. Secondly, the second excuse is if the first one wasn't enough. (laughs) There's four more of these, so get ready, buckle in. Number two, I'll stay here. Now, when he was writing his devotional, he meant here locally as opposed to going overseas in missions work. But I'm modifying it to say this. I'll stay here in my comfort or in my security, or in my familiarity. I'll stay right here and send money instead. Look, this church, I can say a lot of great things about this church. In fact, I can almost not think of any bad things to say about this church. I'm I'm not just saying that to flatter you, or because, you know, you pay my salary or whatever. I'm just being honest with you. This is the greatest church I've ever been a part of. It's an honor to be here, and I love every bit of our church life together. And one of the many, many, many tremendous things I can say about this church is just how incredibly generous in giving this church is. And, and, and I'm, I'm blown away every month when I receive the financial statements from, uh, from Jessica and the finance committee. I'm blown away at just your steady, faithful giving. It's just this reliable, dependable, just overflow of your clear dedication to the Lord. You, you, you don't cling to the things of the world. You, you hold everything with an open hand. And, and as God is leading you and moving upon your heart, you respond and you give and you're free in it. And it's beautiful. It's such an expression of your submission and love to Christ and for Christ. And we have a new budget year coming around the corner. And in this coming budget, as you'll see when, when, when I share it with the church here in just a, a, a matter of days, you will see that this budget will challenge us all to an even greater commitment towards missional giving and outreach. And, and, that's, and that's a good thing because we need to be focused on a, a sacrificial type of giving. It is, it is necessary to carry out Christ's mission through our church. But here's the thing. Never, ever does sacrificial giving exempt someone from missional living. It's not an excuse to avoid it. You can't say, oh, I wrote the check, therefore I'm off the hook. We may not all be able to physically go across to the other side of the world to share the gospel and reach the lost, but we can all cross the street. We can all walk across the cafe or the ball field, the workplace. Every one of us. And we can, and I'll say we must, cross those other types of boundaries that aren't even geographical, be they cultural, 
racial, political? Can we be a people that cross political boundaries? Man, how, how relevant is that in light of what's coming up here in a couple of weeks? I mean, I, I'm all about our civic duty, and we absolutely need to be a people who vote and, ha- and have a voice in the public sphere. We have to. It's, it is crucial. But can we at the same time also reach across that type of boundary line in a godly, Christ-like way? Man, where's the church when it comes to that? Can we reach across boundary lines that are marked by worldview? People who, who believe different things from you, people who hold different um, perspectives on God's word than you, people who, who are identified by different colors than you? Man, the church has to be willing to cross those lines. And Stan Key challenges me when he says, yeah, you, you say you'll stay home and you'll send money instead of going there. He says, but show me where you're pouring your life out right here. Where are you pouring your life out in service right now? Right where you live? Right where Christ has put you in your life? Are you pouring out your life in service there? Writing a check doesn't exempt you from Christ's very clear call to be salt and light in the world, even your world. Thirdly, the third excuse we often can make is I'm not qualified. I'm not qualified. I used to make that excuse once upon a time, and it wasn't in a time when I wasn't qualified. <laughs> it wasn't a matter of qualification. When I was in, I've told this before, it was a number of years ago, but uh, when I was in seminary, I had ample opportunity to join a professor of mine and some students of mine who went regularly into the local jail and ministered to the, the incarcerated. I had chance after chance after chance, and I made the same excuses to myself and to others over and over and over again. I said, I didn't have the time because I'm a seminary student. I mean, that's important stuff, right? I have studies to do. And by the way, my wife will tell you, I wasn't the best at studying. But it was an excuse. And I'm not really cut out for that. That was my main thing. I'm not really cut out. It's, you know, there's a certain kind of person that is, that is qualified and capable to go and, and do that type of ministry. And that, that wasn't me. And I knew it then, but I didn't want to admit it. And it took years for me to, to repent of that and confess my sin. And my sin was that I was too lazy and I was scared. Scared of the unknown. Scared of the risk. Scared of what it might cost me in terms of time or emotions or comfort, whatever. I was scared. Here's the thing I've come to learn and I'm still learning. God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. He's not looking for the super gifted, incredible person. He's looking for the willing person who hears what we, what we just read from William Booth II, who hears the clear commands of Scripture, who hears the cries of the world that is lost and dying, and will, like Isaiah, who, who saw and heard and experienced and tasted the forgiving grace of God and said, here am I. For whatever it's worth, here am I. 
send me. Send me, I'll go. I may have nothing to offer but my availability, but I give it to you. And God says, that's the type of person that I will qualify. That is the type of person that I will equip. It's just a, a couple chapters later in, in the same book we're reading here, in 1321, where he says, the, the God, the same God who raised Jesus from the dead, he will equip you with all you need for doing what he asks. If you're just willing to say yes, even if it's scary, even if it's hard, even if you have no idea what you're doing and you have no idea how you're going to carry it out or you've done it before and it was a failure, no matter what the scenario is or the circumstances, if you hear God tugging at your heart, if you feel it there and you hear his voice and he's speaking to you and you say yes, he will supply. He will equip you for all that you need to do his will. Philippians 4.19, God will supply all of your needs from his glorious riches. We go to that verse because we think that only applies to when I have like a, you know, a, a physical need or some spiritual need, like, you know, I, I need help forgiving somebody. So I ask God and he supplies what I need there. And it's true, he does. Or, you know, it's been a hard month or inflation soaring and I don't make enough money. I lost money in, in the year because my, my, you know, compensation wasn't adjusted or whatever the things that happen in life and we have physical needs and we say, oh, Philippians 4.19 says God will supply. And he does. Absolutely. But who's to say that God doesn't supply what you need to carry out his will for your life? That's why I say God's commands in the scriptures are his promises. Because he's not going to ask you to do something that you can't do apart from him. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And so if you've heard the call to join the team, the, the Kairos team, to go to the prison, and you said, I'm not qualified for that, or I'm not, I don't have the, the tools for that, or I'm not, you know, whatever, able, whatever. No, the, the problem is you're not willing. That's the problem. It's not a matter of qualification. And I just picked that out off the top of my head. Fill in the blank. What God is calling you to be, what God is calling you to do, yeah, on your own you can't do it. That's not the point. It's with him you can do it. He doesn't want your abilities. He wants your availability. And that's what he has wanted all through the scriptures. Every person that he called, he equipped. And the difference between those who were used by him and those who were not, those who thrive and whose names we tell our kids about for thousands of years, their names have been on the lips of God's people, versus those who are lost to the, the annals of history. The difference is those who said yes and those who said no. And that is the only difference. So where are you and I? Are we going to be the yes kind of person or the no? Are we going to say yes to whatever you call trusting in God or are we going to make the excuses? I can't do that. I'm not cut out for that. I'm not fit for that. I'm not qualified for that. It's never our ability that God wants it's our availability. All right, hang in there. <laughs> There's only two more. This one strikes, listen, every one of these hits me right in the heart. This one may be the most of all. My family comes first. My family comes first. Listen, there's, there is truth, a lot of truth, in the sentiment that your family is a primary priority in your life. If you have a family, whether it's children or siblings that you're, or parents that you're caring for, or 
whatever, I mean, all of us come from a family, and some of you, maybe you've lost all your family, and I hope this doesn't, you have a church family. I mean, we all have people, a network of people in our lives that we invest in and care for and care for us at some level. And, and absolutely, that's a priority. You absolutely should care for and provide and love and nurture and support your family. But Stan cautions us in a biblical way after the manner of our Lord himself when he says this, beware the idolatry of the family. Beware. It's a very real danger. As a pastor, I've witnessed families who have sacrificed the things of God at the altar of the family. I've seen it. Where other things are just more important. As a father, I've been guilty of that at times. I've, and, at, and at the very least, I've been tempted to it. To say, yes, God is clearly saying this in my life, clearly calling, clearly commanding, but I have to take care of my family first. Well, Jesus said, hey, in Matthew 10, 37, if you love your father or your mother more than you love me, you're not worthy of being mine. Or if you love your son or daughter more than me, you're not worthy of being mine. And all of us, all of us have to be vigilant that absolutely nothing, nothing in your life comes before Jesus. In my opinion, one of the most important ways that you can love your family and prioritize your family is to model for them a radical, selfless, costly obedience to Jesus. Man, you want to love your kids? Show them that. Show them what that looks like. Our kids, in terms of our biological kids, the kids of this church, this, this is their church, their church family. They need to see a radical, selfless, costly obedience to Jesus in all of us. Not just in mom and dad, but in the, the greeters, in the people at the welcome table, and the people on the platform, and the people in the crow's nest, and the people sitting on their left and on their right, and the teaching the Sunday school class, and are at all the potlucks. We show up for the meals, and we're all happy and good. But where are they seeing the church modeling that to them? Listen, that's the most loving thing you can do for my kids. It's not compliment them on their clothes, or their hair, or say nice things or give them hugs. And then, by the way, I appreciate all of those things. Anytime you lavish love on my kids, it's like you're doing it to me. And I feel it and I, and I embrace it and I and have gratitude in my heart for the ways that you have loved my kids. But the way you can love them best is show them what it means to follow Jesus in your life. The way, parents, you can love your kids is to model for them a Christ-like obedience to the Father. And we know Jesus' obedience to the Father resulted in a cross. A cross. And you and I cannot expect the next generation of Christians to be missional in their living, giving, and going unless you and I are modeling for that for them every single day. All right, number five. 
going overseas, or as I will modify it, going out of this space, going out in mission of any kind is too dangerous. And to that I would say, well, read Hebrews chapter 10 again. Oh, and read chapter 11. <laughs> you want to talk about people who, who suffered, who suffered. I don't mean were inconvenienced. People who suffered because of their obedience and loyalty and faith unto God. Tell, tell those people how dangerous it is to go out of these walls and in mission. Tell that to the people in Hebrews chapter 10 here who were outcasts and outsiders and victims within their own communities. They didn't have to go to some you know, cross-cultural ministry context to experience persecution. It was right in their backyard. In those days, every civic and social and family event involved practices that were you know, tied to their, their pagan idolatry, which meant for Christians trying to be set apart from the world in their allegiance to Christ, trying to live out their faith, they had to forsake those things. And so their loyalty to Jesus impacted every dimension of life. Everywhere they went, every group they were with, everything, every bit of their life was touched by their obedience to Christ. And so for them, it wasn't a matter of suffering in some cross-cultural situation where they had to go, you know, way, way far away and experience hardship. No, they suffered right at home. And they were essentially resident aliens, foreigners in their own, in their own homes, and friends, if you and I are, are serious about the things of God, if we hear the things that the scriptures say about our lives, and if you and I are living the type of lives that truly please God, then you and I are no different. You and I are absolutely resident aliens in this world. You don't belong to this world. You are citizens of another kingdom that doesn't belong to this world. And if you embrace the truth of the word and in the worldview of the scriptures, if Christ is your Lord, then by association, by very definition, you are an outcast and a stranger. And if you're living the kind of life that the, the Bible is calling us to, you will, you will suffer in some form or fashion in this world. And if we are so concerned about insulating ourselves from hardship, the only way that's ever going to really happen is if we forsake the things of God's word and live just safe lives that make no difference in anyone else's life around us. And that, friends, is not what God is calling us to. Joining, joining Christ in mission, whether in China or Chappanoke, <laughs> is dangerous. There's risk. There's cost. But that's what we sign up for, isn't it? When we hear the call of Jesus to be his disciple. Mark eight thirty four. if any of you wants to be my follower... You have to give up your own way and take up your own cross and follow me. There's no such thing as a, a distinction between Christian and disciple. To be a Christian is to be a disciple of Jesus. To be a Christian is to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. That is what it means. So you can't call yourself a Christian and then say, say yes to his grace upon your life and then no to his lordship. 
and tell him no when he says do this. No when he tells you to go there. No when you hear the clear call of his word to be a witness in the world, to be salt and light. No, I will not. Yes to your grace. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for getting me out of you know, hell. But no, I will not do the thing you're calling me to. It doesn't work. To be a Christian is to be a disciple. And Jesus had some very strong words a couple verses later, as if taking up your cross and following him wasn't strong enough. He says in verse 38, If anyone is ashamed of me and my message in these adulterous and sinful days, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Holy moly. Are you ashamed of the gospel? The church addressed in the book of Hebrews once counted the cost of following Jesus. Yes, they were languishing in their faith in the face of renewed persecution. They'd gone through a lot and they were facing more and they, and they were tempted. That's the, that's the great thing about this passage here for me. Yes, it follows a warning passage, a warning against turning away entirely. But they hadn't yet. They hadn't yet. They were not those who had turned away. They were tempted to, and maybe they were heading that direction, but they, they hadn't. So there's, there's hope here. <laughs> there's hope. They languished in their faith in the face of renewed persecution, and they were called to remember how they once looked suffering for Jesus in the face and did what? They rejoiced. And the question that I have is the million-dollar question in the morning, and the question is how? How in the world did they go through that and look on it with joy? Well, the answer, at least in our passage here, is at the end of the verse that I didn't read entirely earlier. You may have noticed it was on the screen, verse 34. I only read the first half because I was saving it for the end. Look again in verse 34. You suffered along with those who were thrown into jail, and when all you owned was taken from you, you accepted it with joy. Why? You knew there were better things waiting for you that will last forever. They endured the, the worst this world has to offer them by looking ahead to the world to come. Their courage, their strength, their perspective, how they viewed their circumstances, their determination came from knowing that there's more to life than things. That there's more to life than, than comfort. And that in Christ, there's something greater beyond the grave. Something that outlasts everything you see around you. Everything in your life, this is the dirty little secret. Everything in your life will be taken away from you. We think if we insulate ourselves now and we avoid the cost, then we can have the stuff. And the truth is, the stuff, it's, it's yours only temporarily anyway. Whether it's the mob or it's the last enemy of death, you take none of it when you go. And who in their right minds, with the, the perspective of eternity, would cling to a, a, a blink's worth of time would cling to that, the convenience of that amount of time versus the blessings of eternity. And yet people everywhere around you exchange one for the other. Be quiet, Siri. You're not allowed to talk right now. 
People all around you trade one for the other. They trade the blessings of eternity for the, the, the ease and the comfort and the security and the, the, the blessings of the temporary. And if that's you, then you won't be able to look hardship in the face for a second. We need to be like the heroes of faith in the next chapter. <laughs> Those people who, on account of their faith, were tortured refused to turn from God in order to be set free because they were in prison. They were jeered at, their backs cut open with whips, chained in prison, who died by stoning, had been sawn in half or killed with the sword, who went about wearing skins of sheep and goats, destitute and oppressed and mistreated, wandering over deserts and mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. And yet, even then, they placed their hope in a better life after the resurrection. Church, that is how we overcome. That is how we persevere. That is how we, that is what carries us through the hardships and the challenges that we face by true missional living, giving, and going. It is faith in the promise of better things to come. It is hope for eternity. Chapter 13 of Hebrews, it says, God has said, I will never fail you. I will never abandon you. So we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. So I will have no fear. What can mere people do to me? What can people do to you? Talk about risk and danger and cost. At the end of the day, what can anyone really ultimately do to you? Well, the answer is, ultimately, nothing. Nothing. Jesus said in Luke 21, <laughs> before I return, there will be a time of persecution. You will be dragged into synagogues and prisons. You will stand trial before kings and governors because you are my followers. But this will be your opportunity to tell them about me. So don't worry in advance about how to answer the charges against you, for I will give you the right words and such wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to reply or refute you. Even those closest to you, your parents, your brothers, relatives, and friends, even they will betray you. They will even kill some of you. And everyone will hate you because you are my followers. But, not even a hair on your head Will perish. Oh man, there's such comfort in those words. Such comfort. Did you catch sort of the, the paradox of what he's saying? They might even kill you, but not even a hair on your head will perish. And that's because they may have the power to steal and break and destroy but they have no power over your soul. They can't touch eternity. If your life is hid with Christ in God, there is a security there that is your strength and your hope and your conviction. And it will carry you through the hardships of following Jesus in this life and, and following him to the, to the hurting and putting your life, your life on the line. And when we say your life on the line, we just mean your physical life. Can't touch your, you can't touch your heart, can't touch your soul, can't touch your spirit. The end in Christ is not the end. It is a new beginning. So for you and me to live as Christ and to die is what? It is gain. 
Listen, there, you and I both know there is an extremely low probability that being the missional people God commands us to be will actually result in any of us here giving up our lives in death. In all likelihood, not a single person here will actually die on some foreign mission field somewhere. It's extremely low probability. But there is a 100% guarantee that being the missional people God commands us to be will require us giving up our lives in life. To be the people God has called you to be means taking up your cross daily and following him. Not just the pastor's cross, not just the, the, the chair of the missions committee or the board of, the board of stewards, the, the leaders. No, all of us, you all, we all take up our crosses daily and follow him. That is, a, that is guaranteed for you, a guaranteed requirement. 100% take it to the bank. If you ever hope to follow Jesus and be the missional people he's called you to be. So let's dispense with the excuses, church. Let's do away with the pious-sounding justifications for our blatant disobedience. Let's not let fear or worry or danger or laziness or apathy or sin for a second anymore cause us to take our eyes off Jesus. His superiority over all things, his lordship over all of our lives, and his crystal clear call to be his people in the world. And let's get real about joining heart and soul and body and circumstances in the march to publish his mercy to the world. Convinced through it all of the better things awaiting us that last forever. Can we be that kind of church? With God's help, we can. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you for voices like Stan Key and the pastor that wrote Hebrews and Isaiah and John the Baptist and the other voices in our lives that challenge us to something more. Thank you for the, the swift kick that wakens us from our, our slumber, that energizes us, quickens us into action. Lord, we all need that. Present company especially included. Thank you for these prophetic voices that, that foretell your, your truth and help us to receive it, not begrudgingly or as if it, it's a nice sentiment that we believe in theory but doesn't really apply to my life. Lord, may we instead receive these things directly, personally, applicably to our own hearts May we be the ones who, who put ourselves in the position to be persecuted or to suffer for the cause of Christ because we're following you to the neediest people in the world. May we be the ones who are propelled by the love of God shed abroad on our hearts but are sustained by the hope of better things to come. We know there's more to, to life than this world. So may we let go of these things. Let go the things that we cling to at the level of the heart. Let go of the, the temporary stuff that we, we build our lives around. And may we cling only to Jesus. Oh, 
Oh, to Jesus, I surrender. All, all to him, I freely give. I surrender it all. It's amazing to me, Lord, as, as we work through a sermon series, and on a, it's on a general theme, but each message has a different focus, and yet it all seems to come back to the same fundamental things. Do we belong to you or not? Lord, I pray every person within the sound of my voice will have made that decision today. And maybe they've made it a hundred times before, but may today be a fresh commitment to follow you, to, to cling to you, to obey you, and to trust in your provision. Not just for the earthly things, but for everything. Even when we're scared. Even when we think we're not cut out for it. Even when... There's a million excuses, Lord, even then and especially then. We can count on your provision. You will supply all that we need to carry out your will. Lord, may it be so for each of our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.